Well, this reminds me of going to like that mid-school camp. You play that game where you put the marshmallows in your mouth. It's called Chubby Bunny. They're not allowed to play that anymore, right? You can't play Chubby Bunny. You put all the marshmallows in your mouth, and whoever can get the most marshmallows in their mouth and still talk is the one who wins the game. I mean, this is like 17 filet mignons, right? I mean, this is packed, packed, packed with goodness and truth and beauty, and that is Paul's intention, that as we hear the word of God, as we believe it, as we trust Jesus, for he has loved us, we would do what he's doing and erupt in this profuse praise to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, Recently, my wife made a delicious meal, a shepherd's pie. Anybody like shepherd's pie? How about like a seven-layer dip or, you know, nachos, right? It's basically just a messy seven-layer dip with some fried tortillas in there. That's what this text reminds me of. It is, it is layered. Layers of deep truth and beauty which lift up our heads in this moment we're in, in this world we live in, all the things John prayed for. Paul is here to lift up our heads to, to focus on the glory of the Father through the Son by the Spirit uh, that we might be healed, that we might be made whole, that we might be sent out with great purpose and these words on our lips to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, before we get to the shepherd's pie, seven-layer dip, let's remember where we ended last week. We finished up the gospel of Mark with this beautiful account of the resurrection. And Mark's gospel, which is driven by a series of speedy questions to the reader, ends with a final question, kind of a a mega question, because Mark's gospel ends really abruptly. It it ends so abruptly that, you know, a hundred years later and more, folks were like, this is a weird ending, and so we're going to maybe just add a few more verses here and and there, but it, it ends abruptly so that we might ask this simple question, the question that we should ask together This morning, whether you're a Christian, you've been a Christian a long time, you just became a Christian, you're wrestling, you're doubting, you're cynical, or you're here, you're not a Christian at all, we're so glad you're here, this is the question. What will you do with Jesus? You've heard his story, you know about the needs of your own story, you've been given the evidence and the invitation. John made that point last week. Not only the evidence of the resurrection, but the invitation to experience the power of the resurrection in your life. If you're like me, you need that power. Because there's a lot, of, a lot of wonderful days, a lot of joyful days. There's also a lot of challenges. A lot of selfishness that can creep up out of my own heart. It's out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus says, that comes all of this stuff. The words we say that we can't take back. Our greed, our fear, our lust, our insecurity, our anxiety, our love of power and pleasure over God. So Mark asked the question to end his gospel, what will you do with Jesus? And now we turn 30 years later to this letter to the church in Ephesus and surrounding areas, the book of Ephesians. And let's remember that this was a letter to a church and churches of ordinary people, an ordinary small group of unnamed saints. And I think it'll be good as we move forward in this study of God's word through Paul's letter to the Ephesians to ask, if the Lord were writing a church to us, 
I mean, he's given us his word, so that answers the question. But if the Lord were to write a specific letter to us, Christ Church Santa Fe 2023, what would he say? What would he say to the church in Santa Fe called Christ Church Santa Fe in 2023? Where would he commend our love for God and for one another? Where would he challenge our idols? So this is a letter to a church, and it comes with a new set of questions. Mark's question, what will you do with Jesus? And now, Paul writing basically in AD 60-62, in that time frame, the question has evolved into this, what happens? Not what will you do with Jesus, but what happens when Jesus by his spirit is on the move? Through the forgiveness of the cross and the power of the resurrection, when the death and the resurrection of Christ are operative in the life of people, unnamed and unlikely people here in Ephesus. What story does the grace of God begin to tell when it sinks deeply into the hearts of people? What is the story of God's grace in your life and his faithfulness to you? And how does this, in our world, in our lives, friendships, neighbors, schools, and workplaces, how does this anchor us? How does this anchor us in grace and truth so that we can go out into Santa Fe, not, you know, not with the burden of the law, not beating people over the head with a 90-pound Bible, not yelling at, at people in the world because they're not being Christian enough? What do we expect? But with good news of faith and repentance and love and grace. Paul then, in this opening of his letter leads us to look upon a glorious God, his plan, his purposes, and his person. And so we're going to take this in, in two sections this morning. The first is the few opening lines of Paul's salutation. And secondly, the bulk of our text, verses 4 through 11, this effusive poem of praise. So let's look first at, at Paul's salutation where he introduces himself he does so in, in a normal way. Most epistles in, in those days, most formal letters would begin with an introduction like this. But we should ask, as we start with Paul and his opening words, what does he want us to know? Well, first of all, he's an apostle, which means that he has the authority to bring the truth of God's word to these people, but that authority is not vested in him. It is derived and given to him as a gift. He is a called man. He is a summoned man. And we see that because he says he's apostle of Christ Jesus. Christ meaning Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior. Paul's an emissary. He's an ambassador. And how is he these things? He tells us by the will of God. As we think about Paul's messy, very complicated, very broken life before he came to know Jesus, we need to remember with Paul because Paul wants us to remember with him that he is, he is one who exists to share good news because the Lord has done it. And I just want to say to myself and to all of you this morning, if you're a Christian, if you woke up this morning and said, you know what, there's a million things that I'm being sold and told all day long to believe in. You know, be, be better looking, make more money, find, you know, hope and security and all this stuff, but I put my trust in Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus. If that's you, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. You may have the most, quote, boring testimony, which if you do, praise the Lord. 
You know, I came into the church, I was baptized. I kind of can't remember a time in my life where I didn't know the Lord. My parents brought me up to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Kind of boring, wonderful, still a miracle. It's always a miracle when God saves a soul, when he takes a heart of stone and turns it to a heart of flesh. And this was deeply true for Paul. Paul, in writing this letter, in all of Paul's letters, he's drawing from his own story, his own salvation, his own rescue. Perhaps that's why we sense in Paul's writing so often an urgency to get the good news to people who need to hear it, not just in a little holy huddle, the church, but to get it to Christians, because you don't just start with the gospel and then go to works. It's the gospel all the way down your whole life. You never graduate from it. He wants to get it to Christians so that they can get it to everybody else in Ephesus and Asia Minor. As it were, Paul is a man on fire. He knows what it's like to be rescued. In one of his last letters, 1 Timothy, Paul says that before he came to know Christ, he was basically a violent man. He uses that strong and loaded word in the Greek, I was violent. And therefore, he says to Timothy, I was, you know, I'm I'm the worst of all sinners, and God saved me. This was true of Paul's life and his zeal to persecute any who didn't believe his strict sect of Phariseeism until he was about 30 years old. That's when he came to Christ, and he was rescued from sin and death and the devil and the burden of the law. And so, right out of the gate, Right out of the gate, Paul, in introducing himself, giving us his quick intro elevator pitch, he wants us to know the good hand of the will of God in the gospel. And so he says in so many of his letters, grace and peace to you. It is coming to you. It is literally going to be delivered to you now in this shepherd's pie. The word of God, grace and peace is coming your way. And at the end of Paul's letters, he often says, you know, grace and peace now have come to you. Assurance and rest. Sabbath, rest, and assurance for the people of God. Do you need that rest for your souls? Do you need assurance? Do you need to know, not just on your best day when you're doing pretty good and acting pretty holy, but on your worst day when you're really struggling and and doubting, and and frustrated, and overcome, and you've made mistakes, you need to know that there is rest in the work of Christ. You know, we gather as a church every Sunday, we call it the Lord's Day. It's because God is worthy of His glory and worship, and because we need to be gathered out of the world just for a minute, like sheep to our shepherd, to be reminded that there is real rest for us because of what Jesus has done to the praise of his glorious grace. We meet now on Sundays, no longer on Saturdays, because this is the first day of the new week, the beginning of the Sabbath rest that is moving us toward the new heavens and the new earth, the new garden where we will be with God forever. I think of sermons in this way. Lots of different preachers and styles and all these sorts of things. But, but you get the text, you get God's word. It's like a pile of wood, okay? It's like a pile of wood. And the job of the preacher is to take that pile of wood and do the best job that he can to stay true to the text and make, as it were, a seat or a chair upon which the people of God can come and sit and rest. 
Now, some weeks, you know, as a, as a preacher, I might think, oh, man, that's an amazing chair. I'm going to take that chair down to the consignment and sell that chair. Some weeks, you're just doing the best you can to, like, roll out a stump, you know, and set it up. But either way, it is a place for us as God's people to sit, to rest, to have Sabbath, to have assurance that in our brokenness, our messiness, and as sinners, when we cry out, to God in worship, we never leave with more shame or guilt or compounded burden. We leave with the comfort and the hope of the gospel. If you go to a church and you do not leave the sermon and the supper and the service without the comfort and the hope of the gospel, you haven't gone to a church. You've done something else, but I think that's a little bit about what Jesus is saying when he refers to certain religious institutions as strong words, synagogues of Satan. Why? Because people come and they leave twice as burdened as they were before they got there. So Paul wants us to know right out of the gate, grace and peace are coming your way, assurance and rest in the gospel. Now, who is Paul writing to? He's writing to the saints. Saints here just means those who have been made holy by the work of Christ. These aren't special people. They're not special people who are deserving of a special statue. Now, of course, throughout history, there are folks that we can think about and read and honor for the, for the stuff that God has done through them. But Paul is clear here that all of God's people, if they are in Christ, are saints. There are no super saints. There are just those who have Christ and are therefore being sanctified or made holy in this place, Ephesus, all believers. Now, he's writing to Ephesus, and the earliest manuscripts sort of disagree about the words in Ephesus. All right, so I spent some time studying this week, and I read some nerds, so you don't have to. And here's my conclusion, and, and hopefully John agrees, and we'll see if he does next week. But the best conclusion I can come up with here is that the, the letter of the Ephesians most likely did go in primarily to the city of Ephesus, but it was also used as what's called a circular letter, meaning it was to be passed around to the other churches in Asia Minor, which is what is now Western Turkey on uh, the, uh, the beach of the Mediterranean. So most likely Ephesus itself and churches around Ephesus. And the reason I feel strongly about this is because there are a lot of things that Paul does in this letter that those in Ephesus would have related to as far as their issues and the other worldviews and religions that were surrounding them. We'll get into that a lot more as we go. But know this about Ephesians. In those days, it was a very, or Ephesus, it was a very important city, a very important city. It was a wealthy city. On one side, they had good soil, good farming. They were exporters. They had a port there. And so as far as uh, trade was concerned, they were doing very well. Uh, later on, a library was built, a hospital. Uh, they had a quarry of rich marble. And the temple in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, in those days was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. But remember again that this is not an abstract letter. It is to a particular people in a place and a time. Now it's for all times. It's for us. Because there's nothing new under the sun. But Paul is writing here to people that he knows. Uh, Ephesus was dear to Paul. On his second missionary journey, Paul most likely helped to 
and or did plant the church in Ephesus. He first, as was his custom, went to the synagogue in the city to preach the good news of Jesus from the Old Testament to his Jewish brothers and sisters, showing them that Christ is the fulfillment of all these promises, and many of them believed. Many of them believed. He then went to the marketplace or the agora to preach to the Gentiles. And you can read about this, and I would love for you to read it. I think John and I would both love if you would go back and just read Acts chapter 19 and 20. And you can read about what happened in Ephesus when Paul went there for the first time on this second missionary journey. One really interesting detail here is that the preaching of the gospel in Ephesus was deeply disruptive. In fact, there's a story in there where one guy who makes little statues to the goddess Artemis, Demetrius, is so upset that Paul's coming in to preach the good news of Jesus because it's disrupting their economy. Because if Jesus is real, then Artemis isn't, and our whole business is built on building these little statues and selling this stuff in the trinket stores. And it wasn't just like, you know, ghetto trinket stores. It was like Santa Fe. Some of it was really expensive and overpriced. So these guys were like, this is a big deal. You can't be messing with Artemis. Don't be coming in here and messing with our, you know, our local regional deity and our religion and all the pilgrims that would travel from all over Asia Minor to come see this temple and worship this goddess. Then we read about Paul in Acts chapter 20 when he leaves Ephesus after a long three-year stint. It's about as long as Paul spent anywhere. And we're told that he gathers with the elders of the church the Ephesian elders, and in this long goodbye in Acts chapter 20, they actually, they cry together. They weep together, the word of God says, because they loved each other so deeply and they had seen the Lord move. Paul suffered with these people. He saw the gospel disrupt the culture of Ephesus and persecution. He saw the gospel bear fruit. He saw what was impossible to go into a city like Ephesus and preach Jesus and see a church of Jew and Gentile formed, united around Christ. But the Spirit worked through the Word of God and united people to the grace of Jesus and a church was planted. Paul loved this church and he loved and walked with Ephesus probably those 20 to 15 years in between the second missionary journey and when this letter was written, Many of you know Paul was under his first Roman imprisonment. You can read about that in Acts chapter 28. This isn't the Roman imprisonment where Paul died. That comes about five or six years later in Rome. Again, Mamertine prison, most likely where Paul ekes out the, gospel, uh, the letter of 2 Timothy. But Paul is under house arrest in Rome, so he has a lot of freedom. He can see people and do stuff. And as he's under this Roman house arrest, he writes a handful of prison epistles, Colossians, Philippians, and Ephesians. Now, the letter to the Ephesians is the letter that we have in the New Testament. But realize there are basically two other letters to the church in Ephesus, 1 and 2 Timothy. Because Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus, young, green-horned Timothy that was trying to make everybody happy all the time and, you know, a bunch of stuff that I will never, ever relate to. Uh, you know, young Pastor Timothy and Paul writes First and Second Timothy, but those are letters that are written to the church in Ephesus and undoubtedly read in the region as well. One unique thing about Ephesians is that there's no, like, major issue. 
All right, we got a, a group of guys at the church who's about to start 1 Corinthians in their Bible study, right? Man, read 1 Corinthians. I mean, it is like a dumpster fire with gas poured on top of it. All the issues in the church, and there's a letter from Chloe's house to Paul, and how do I deal with this, and what about this, and not really so much in Ephesians. There's no big issue. There's just the normal issues of the Christian life, which is we are so prone to forget the good news. Human beings need the gospel again and again and again, and we need to see how the power of God in the gospel informs how we are to live. Vertically, loved by Christ, loving Christ, and then horizontally going out not to earn God's favor, but already having his favor as sons and daughters to share that love with those around us. So as you may know, Ephesians is basically two parts, chapters one through three and chapters four through six. Chapters one through three are this deep and glorious explanation of who we are in Christ and what is the grace of God and how that makes the church. The indicative, this is who you are. Chapters four through six turn not away from the gospel, but in and through that power to how shall we now live? So one through three, indicative, chapters four through six, imperative. And brothers and sisters, we have to be very careful to not get these backwards. And so, so many of us who, you know, saw, I know some of you in this room grew up a little bit more in like a fundamentalist type deal. When I think about, quote, fundamentalism, I think about the nature of that as getting these two backwards. Instead of starting with who I am in Christ and out of that here is, here's the fruit that is born, it starts with here's what I need to do. Here's what I need to do to get better. And, and then if I, if I make the right choices, if I say the right things, if I live the right life, I'll be loved by God. So there is no big issue. There's just that issue, which of course is the biggest issue. It's perennial for all time and all places. And yet there is a context here that's important for us to understand. I've briefly touched on it, but I want to say a bit more. And that was the cult of worship around uh, the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. Artemis and the worship of Artemis was at the center of Ephesian culture and the center of the religious system in Asia Minor. You'll see Artemis represented in statues as a many-breasted woman, and that is because hers was the promise of fertility. Artemis represents a fertility cult. All of her priests were eunuch males. They were required to remove from themselves their own possibility of fertility, and for that to, as it were, be worn around their necks as a sign that Artemis herself would provide. Male, eunuch, and female priestesses. Now, if this kind of sounds a little bit gross, it is. And actually, it's way grosser than I'm even telling you guys about right now. You want to know more? You do. But we won't, all right, because there's like still a couple kids in the room. But you have to understand that the cult of Artemis was all about you cut into yourself you cut into the gifts God has given you. You harm yourself so that you can appease this goddess so that she will bless you with what you need. Uh, the rituals of Artemis and worship were deeply uh, complicated and erotic. Um, and yet at the time, it is thought by at least a few scholars that Artemis was the most worshipped goddess in the entire Greco-Roman Empire. The temple of Artemis, again, one of the seven wonders of the world, received 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of visitors every year. And that made the city unbelievably wealthy. Indeed, the temple of Artemis, dedicated to lust and perverted human sexuality and self-harm and self-sacrifice, was also at the time one of the world's largest banks. Does this sound familiar? We are so sophisticated, aren't we, in 2023? Oh, these little babbling pagans. Nobody in this day thought that human beings rose from the dead, okay? Nobody. Nobody thought, oh yeah, resurrection, that's a common thing. These were not idiots. And yet here we are, right a couple thousand years later, and pleasure and power, sex and money, the cult of Artemis and the temple filled with money and rituals of I need to cut myself and hurt myself and give up of myself to appease the gods, we have advanced exactly nowhere. Nowhere in the human condition. The story is the same exact story. And so it is good for us in Santa Fe with our temples to look around and say, man, where is their false worship here? And where is their false worship in our lives? Where am I believing that if I had enough of this or enough of that, that I would be enough? That if I made enough sacrifices to, to this end or to that person or to this thing, that I would be made whole, that I would really be loved. I could be fully known and fully loved if I just had that. If I just had a, you know, a better house or a better car, better relationships with people in my life, it would be enough. And yet what Paul is going to show us throughout this letter is that this is pure slavery. It is pure slavery. Because Artemis, this false goddess, lower G goddess, whose temple is destroyed, whose cult is no more, she was always taking always taking and never giving. You come and give to me. And if I look down, and if I like you, and if you are found likable in my eyes and sufficient, then maybe, maybe I'll bless you with the fertility that you desire, not only for children, but for your land and for your businesses. Always promising, but you can never be certain of the promise. That's not a very good promise, is it? It's not a very good chair to sit on. It's not very restful. There's not much Sabbath and assurance in that. Thanks for the promise, Artemis, but can you be trusted? I don't know. Let's see how you do. That would make for bad parenting. It also makes for really bad worship. Beyond that, Artemis was so limited in space and time. She had at this point become, as it were, a divine abstraction about a human reality that was desired for. She was not a personal goddess who even began to care about knowing your name. And yet it's into that place, into that cult of worship, that the Holy Spirit moved and fell upon the people of God through the word of God and created a church of people who could go out into the city and say, we love Ephesus. We're not trying to destroy the city. We are trying to tell you there is better news for you than what that lady has to offer. In the book of Ephesians, we see that the, those who don't know the Lord Jesus are being drawn in. Can you imagine? Uh, these letters were read in church, right? The whole letter. They didn't have verses and chapters. They had a scroll. 
and they read the whole letter normally from start to finish. I'm sure Timothy or the other elders there would have given various interpretations on things. But can you imagine, you know, somebody inviting a friend? You know, hey, I know you've heard about this little church and you've heard it's kind of weird because it's disrupting the economy and, you know, is it just another little house religion or one God among many? But why don't you come? Come in here because this week we got a letter. We got a letter from Paul. It's just arrived. And we're going to hear and read the whole letter. Take about 25 minutes to read the entirety of Ephesians. Maybe that's what we should have done this morning. That would have been way too much bean dip. Y'all would have died on that. But imagine inviting a friend who is just burdened by all the heavy weights of Ephesus. You've got to make money. You've got to be in the right guild. You've got to worship the right gods. You've got to worship the right gods in the right way at the right time. And you've got to keep doing it if you have any hope for them to care about anything that you need. Always uncertainty, always anxiety, never real hope, never grounded in rest. Can you imagine that visiting friend hearing the good news that we read this morning about a God who chooses, who loves, who adopts, who predestines, who knows you by name, who doesn't do it based on how good you're doing that day, but out of the counsel of his own will and his own perfect character, he sets his love upon you because he wants to. And in doing that, he unites a people who should not be united, Jew and Gentile. And in doing that, he creates a new humanity, which will become his church, which will grow and rule and reign with Christ until he returns. And that's why Paul erupts into this effusive praise poem, this doxology. You know what I love about verses 3 through 14? You guys are going to love this too. It's one sentence. In the Greek, right? So that's another thing that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Pastors, run on sentence. This one single sentence in the Greek unpacks the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working to not only accomplish but apply redemption to the people of God. And not only accomplish it, but apply it to specific needy people in a city that desperately needs good news. They don't need another synagogue of Satan. They don't need more rules and more altars and more sacrifices and more giving with one who is always taking. They need to be fed. They need to be fed. They need a a seat to sit on. They need rest. And so as we move forward in in the book of Ephesians, let's come back to that question. Not so much what will you do with Jesus, but what happens when the death and resurrection power of Jesus are operative in the life of a people. If this is who God is, the God of amazing grace, these beautiful doctrines of grace, if this is who God is, what does that make you? What does that mean for your story? What does it mean for the things that the Lord is excavating out of you, those little Artemis statues that over time he is excavating, not to shame you and guilt you and beat you up, but but to destroy those wicked things and bring healing to your life where there's guilt, where there's shame, where there are wounds. What does it make you? What does it make you in him? And as we are in him, what does that make us as we go out into Santa Fe? Blessed 
Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. I'm so thankful that Paul gives us a a foundation, a groundwork for the entire rest of this letter and the rest of our lives. That It all begins with you, God, for your glory. It is for your glory and our joy that you do the miracle of Adopting us into your family, giving us an inheritance, making us a people, a new name, sons and daughters, uniting us to Christ. Father, we praise you that we are in Christ. Even as we come to the table right now, Lord, help us to remember that that in this section of Ephesians, the words in Christ are used the most over nine times. It is beyond redundant were it not a poem for the purposes of us getting it through our thick skulls that our only hope is that we are in Christ. We have union with Christ. And Jesus, in our union with you, by the Spirit, we are justified. We are sanctified. We are adopted. We will be glorified. You are doing it. And so unlike Artemis and all the others, you don't come demanding that we crawl to you on our knees, bloody knees, showing our devotion, bringing our food to the altar, burning it up, and then being fickle and saying maybe. Instead, you invite us to this table where you have not said maybe, you have said yes and amen. It is finished. God is glorified. Come with faith and trust to one who can save and know that you are loved and loved in the Beloved. So do that now, Lord, as we come to this meal, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.